Now, last week, we looked uh, at the first half of 1 Timothy 5 and Paul's instructions on dealing with different members of the church body. In particular, in that half, we looked at general behavior or attitude towards different age groups, and then specifically at how to determine which widows should be cared for while instructing that care should start at the home with the family. This week, Paul's instructions deal, deals with fellow elders and pastors. Well, let's look at our passage. First uh, Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good work of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Now we're going to go through this passage basically verse by verse, as is our custom. And I will say that the divisions at main points and the main point headings here are not original with me. I, I uh, borrowed these from another pastor, but I think I would be hard-pressed to find better headings than these. So first, we will see compensation as we look at verses 17 and 18, then accusation in verses 19 to 21, and then ordination in verses 22 through 25. So let's start with our first word, compensation, compensation, and look at verses 17 to 18. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the, la for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, as we said before, this word elder here is being used in the more technical term referring to the office of pastor, elder, overseer. You'll remember that the qualifications of the office were given in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, Paul is describing how the elder overseer should be treated by the congregation. The first thing we need to understand is the term rule. Most Bible translations, uh, most Bible versions translate this word as rule, while the Christian standard reads elders who are good leaders, and the NIV reads elders who direct the affairs of the church well. Both of these translations are trying to explain what is meant in the original language. The word rule has the idea of leading, ruling over, or managing. So this is about the elder pastor leading or managing the church well. And for those men that, manage, that are managing the church well, spiritually ruling the church well, Paul says they are worthy of double honor. Well, honor here 
is the same word that was used in verse 3 when discussing widows. Though here the sense is generally taken as a compensation or financial pay for essentially compensation for services rendered. Okay, To say double honor, though, causes some questions. Primarily, what is the honor being doubled? Is the pay of those elders in Ephesus, excuse me, is the pay those elders in Ephesus was to be doubled from what they were already given? Was this to double what the widows received or of other pastor elders that weren't, that didn't engage in teaching and preaching? I think the better understanding is that the double honor should be understood as two types of honor. The first being honor and respect that are due the office and function of the elder, overseer, pastor, while the second or double honor is an appropriate remuneration for the service, appropriate compensation. The J.B. Phillips translation reads, worthy of respect and of adequate salary. Paul then puts a condition on his statement, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. Let's look at these words briefly to understand what Paul is saying. First, the word labor is to work hard, to toil. And the use here means to work hard to the point of exhaustion. You are tiring your body out. You're working so hard. The term word can mean word, speech, or message. Here, it is being used with the idea of proclaiming a message. So in other words, preaching. And some translations, uh, some versions translate it that way. The word doctrine is the word that's been used throughout 1 Timothy. And here, as in chapter 4, verse 13, the word implies the activity of teaching or the imparting of knowledge or skill. So it's about that public teaching of Scripture. Now, this phrase is very plain. The elder overseer pastor that works hard in preaching and teaching the word of God is especially due the double honor that Paul was just talking about. The pastor that works hard in preaching and teaching the word is leading, ruling the local church in a good fashion and deserving of respect and an adequate salary. Now, this verse may imply that there were other elders on staff that weren't given the responsibility to preach and teach, or that this refers to those who preached and taught because that it was expected of them versus those who put all their energy into their efforts of preaching and teaching. Those who preached and taught because it was what was expected of them, versus those who want to dig into the word and to expound the word and to really see change in the congregation because of the ministry of the word. Now, my understanding is that since Paul has been stressing the teaching of proper biblical doctrine through this book, then the church should recognize if its pastor is teaching the sound doctrine and that his labor, his work in that part of his ministry is clearly evident, then he is especially worthy of that double honor. 
Paul then uses scriptural support to back up what he says in this previous verse. In verse 18, he quotes first from the Old Testament. He uses Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. This may sound strange today, but when the law was given, the process was for, an, for oxen to either be tied to a stone and then walk around the stone or to be pulling a sledge behind them. Either way, it was while they were walking, they were walking over the harvested grain and crushing it to bring the kernels out of the shells. The idea here was that they should not be muzzled so that they have the opportunity to eat some of what they're threshing out. And this was very likely unique to Israel because other nations would muzzle the ox so that they could bring in as much harvest as they possibly could and maybe and would, would feed the oxen later. But here, God is allowing, God is telling the, the Israelites that they're working, let them be paid, essentially, out of their work. Paul quotes this verse also in 1 Corinthians 9, as well as taking more time to discuss the idea of compensation. We're not going to go there uh, today. We've got um, kind of a lot to go through. But also in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 5, Paul quotes Jesus' words from Luke 10, 7. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, this phrase is also found in Matthew 10, 10 with a slight variation. Now, whether Paul was quoting Matthew or Luke's gospel account, or whether these were words that had been ascribed to Jesus by, by the other apostles, Paul was aware of them. But Paul is equating what Jesus said and with an Old Testament passage and declaring both as scripture. Either way, it is clear both of these quotes are saying the same thing. The hard work of pastoral ministry, and especially those laboring in preaching and teaching, should be compensated adequately by the church. Now, Paul says something similar when he's uh, uh, to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, he says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. So this wasn't just something he was writing Timothy for the church of Ephesus. This was something he's dealt with in Corinth and in Thessalonica. Now, before we move on, I want to clarify and state outright that this is not me seeking a raise. I am, and I'm not trying to be polite and modest with this. I am merely working through the book of the Bible and teaching the principles found therein. Do not think that I am seeking a raise or a gift or anything else by preaching on this passage. Y'all have been very generous, and Mariah and I are very grateful for the blessings that we have been given. But as we move on, 
We have seen that our first couple of verses make it clear that churches are responsible to see that their pastors are cared for properly, that they receive an appropriate amount of compensation for their work, especially uh, of leading the church and laboring and preaching and teaching the word of God. This also, if, and if churches do this well with their pastors, they're going to certainly do this well with men that they sometimes need to fill the pulpit. Now next, we need to look at a topic of equal importance concerning pastors or elders. Verses 19 to 21 discuss accusations against an elder. Accusation. Let's look at these verses, uh, beginning in verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the, the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. To start, I want to read a quote from Warren Wearsby on this section. He writes, church discipline usually goes to one of two extremes. Either there is no discipline at all, and the church languishes because of disobedience and sin, or the church officers become evangelical policemen who hold a kangaroo court and violate many of the Bible's spiritual principles. The disciplining of church members is explained in Matthew 18, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, Galatians 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 Timothy 2, Titus 3, and 2 John verses 9 to 11. Paul, in this passage, 1 Timothy 5, discusses the disciplining of church leaders. It is sad when a church member must be disciplined, but it is even sadder when a spiritual leader fails and must be disciplined. For leaders, when they fall, have a way of affecting others. Now, Paul begins here by reminding Timothy of the need of witnesses before beginning church discipline on an elder pastor or any member. This, again, is an Old Testament principle that Paul is bringing forward into the church function. Though he is not quoting the passage directly, the principle is found there. Deuteronomy 19.15, uh, we read there, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. In the law of Israel, two to three witnesses were required for an accusation to be seen as really serious. Now, this doesn't mean that a single accusation wouldn't warrant something being done, but generally, two to three witnesses was seen as best to warrant legal action. There's also New Testament support for this as well. I've already mentioned Matthew 18, but in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17... Jesus gives the basic guideline for confronting a fellow disciple over a, about a sin. And in verse 16, Jesus says that if the fellow disciple won't repent when you confront him, then take one or two more with you and try again. Then in verse 16, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 19.15 as a reminder and support of having witnesses. The point is, whether we are dealing with a pastor elder, 
a deacon or a member of the church, two to three witnesses really establish a sin problem or a wrongdoing. In this passage, this is to be this is for the protection of the elder from a single person seeking to cause trouble or to oust the elder. The same is true of a deacon or a church member. The commentator John Trapp on this verse said, Every fool has an arrow to shoot at a faithful preacher. Now, if there is a problem between two individuals, biblically, those two should resolve it between themselves and not involve the rest of the church unless it becomes a major issue and church discipline is needed. But this doesn't mean that elders, pastors are above church discipline. In verse 20, Paul gives information uh, gives instruction about having to publicly rebuke. The advisement of having two to three witnesses when hearing accusations against an elder is not to protect those men who are blatantly continuing in sin. The way to understand the beginning of verse 20 is those who persist in sinning. Though it doesn't say it, I think it's safe to assume, to, safe to assume that if the pastor were truly to repent, then the matter should be closed, though the seriousness of the offense should be considered. Meaning that if the sin disqualifies the man from serving as elder, then he should be removed. In my notes, I have, he should be removed, high, um, bolded, capitalized, underlined, and italicized. I can't put any more emphasis in my notes about that. If the sin of the elder pastor disqualifies him from serving, then he should be removed. And Paul tells Timothy that the elder or deacon or church member that persists in sinning should be rebuked, uh, admonished, censured, called out in the presence of all. If the individual, leadership or not, does not repent or continues an egregious sin, then before the church, they are to be disciplined. Why? The rest of verse 20 explains that the rest also may fear. The Christian Standard Bible reads, so that the rest will be afraid. The NIV reads, so that the others may take warning. The J.B. Phillips paraphrase reads, as a salutary warning to others. One author notes here, a public disciplining is especially appropriate if the sin was of a public nature. People will then have a respect for the church and will search their own lives when they see that even leaders are not exempt from discipline for sin. Believe it or not, there is Old Testament support for this as well. Again, in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 11. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which all, are all around you, near to you, or from far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him. You shall 
nor shall you I pity him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stone until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. The point of the verses is, I think, well, primarily, that I think God has a real desire for proper doctrine. Because it says it doesn't matter if this is your brother, your child, your wife, or your spouse, or that friend who have you who you've been with since childhood and you know everything about each other. If either of if any of them try to lead you away from the Lord under this under this law uh, for Israel in the Old Testament, they were to have them stoned, and it better be that person with the first stone. Why? Because then in verse eleven, so all Israel shall hear and fear. The idea is that public discipline was to keep the same problem from happening again. Now, the Old Testament law, that's very stringent, but the same idea is applied here. Church discipline, if it becomes a public matter, is done publicly so that we can say this, this sin is a problem. It needs to be dealt with. But then all of us understand that sin is an issue and this hopefully will not happen again. Now moving into verse 21, Paul wraps up this section, which I think is the, the very least going back to verse 19, um, possibly verse 17. But here he charges Timothy. He warns him with a solemn expression. Now, this opening portion of the verse seems to function as an oath to strengthen the instructions just given and give those instruction the stamp of divine authority. In other words, he says, I warn you with God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels as witnesses, I warn you to do this. This is the only place in the New Testament where that specific format, God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels. This is also the only place in the New Testament where the phrase elect angels is used. Elect is usually used uh, to indicate God's choice. These are to be understood as the angels who that did not rebel with Satan, that still serve God. Now, Paul seems to be reminding Timothy that God the Father on the throne of heaven, Jesus himself at the Father's right hand, and the holy angels in, the heaven, in heaven's throne room are witnessing, watching the church. Paul has indicated that holy angels observe the church and its ministers in 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 9, and chapter 11, verse 10. 
But the charge itself that Paul gives is that Timothy follow these instructions at the very least about the accusation against elders as fairly as possible. Timothy, and by extension us, are to follow through without prejudice or partiality. We must remember that there is no seniority in the church. It doesn't matter what your title or office is. Before God and his word, everyone stands on equal ground. This means one accusation from someone with a grudge against the pastor is not enough to remove him from office. But it also means that sins shouldn't be swept under the rug. One author writes, when disciplining, when disciplining of elders is called, for, is called for, it should be done with all fairness and with the absence of personal like or dislike. When the disciplining of elders is called for, it should be done with all fairness and with the absence of personal like or dislike. Whether dealing with leadership or church member, but especially with leadership, discipline without prejudice or partiality for the person is essential. The word of God is the standard. So we've seen the matter of compensation for elders in verses 17 to 18 and how to deal with accusations against elders in verses 19 to 21. Our last point is found in verses 22 to 25. And this gives instruction and advice for the selection of men to serve as pastors or elders. This is ordination. Ordination. Let's look at these verses. Uh, beginning in verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Now, in verse 22, the reference here of laying on hands, as in the other references found in the pastoral epistles, is referring to ordaining, the setting aside to ministry of a man in the office of elder. Some try to argue that this reference is to restoring a penitent man to office, but the support for that argument is rather weak. Paul tells Timothy that we shouldn't appoint a man, he shouldn't appoint a man to the ministry too hastily. Paul has already addressed the qualifications of the overseer elder. Timothy should have an idea of the man. His life should be evaluated before he is hastily chosen. The next part of the verse gives some clarification. If a man is chosen hastily and is unqualified for the office, then those who appointed him share some of the responsibility of his actions. This is why today we seek references and resumes of men looking to be a pastor. Not because it's good business sense, but because churches need to see a clear picture of the man. Though sometimes churches become, become too picky, and during this great shortage of men entering the ministry, 
that can be a hindrance. Churches want a younger man, but 20 years of pastoral experience. Stop putting pastoral candidates in this catch-22 and give a man a chance. Now, before I get off my soapbox, let me very, very humbly express my deepest gratitude for calling me two and a half years ago. Now, Paul reminds Timothy to keep himself pure. This statement comes on the heels of telling that those who appoint an unqualified elder share in the sins of that man. Timothy, when agreeing to or seeking to appoint elders, was to keep himself pure. The word used here is with the sense of being faultless. If Timothy carefully examines, evaluates a man for the office of pastor elder, then he is faultless at the appointment. Even if the man fails while he's in office or had, or had deceived everyone, if he deceives everyone, that's all on him. If they did their due diligence, great. Now, as we move into verse 23, this seems to be, this note of purity seems to cause Paul to add a, a personal note to Timothy in verse 23. At first reading, this verse seems quite out of place in the middle of these verses. Maybe it was just, you know, 22 is one statement, 23 is another note, 24 and 25 deal with some other topic. I don't think so. I think that this verse is a parenthetical note of a personal nature from Paul to his protege, Timothy. We've written letters, email or handwritten before, and we've done that. We are middle of a thought, something causes us, we write an extra note, and then we move on. I'll demonstrate. I'm going to read these verses again, but skip verse 23 entirely. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of good, uh, but those of some follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Verse 22 seems to flow right into verses 24 and 25. 23 seems to be a parenthesis. So let's take, let's take a moment here. Paul is instructing Timothy to start adding a little wine to his drink menu or to, to mix some wine with his water. Now, there is only speculation as to what caused Timothy's frequent illness, but it seems that that seems to be linked to his stomach, or why Timothy was only drinking water. We can only speculate on these. However, it does seem that his drinking only water added to or caused these bouts of illness. Pure and germ-free water is a modern convenience for sure. And it may not have been known in the first century. So it is possible that Timothy, wishing to set a good example of not indulging in wine, chapter 3, verse 3, and as a good elder overseer, decided to abstain from wine entirely. 
However, this seems to have had a negative effect on his health. Paul tells him to take some wine for its medicinal use. Wine was often used for medicinal reasons. Note that Paul is not criticizing Timothy or telling him not to abstain from wine as a beverage, but reminds him that medicinally, wine was, take, was fine to take. This verse should not be hoisted as a banner of Christian liberty that permits the drinking of alcohol. That is grossly out of context. Now in verses 24 and 25, Paul returns to his thought of verse 22 and compares a person's sins and good deeds. Churches shouldn't fear the implication of choosing an unqualified man as an elder. If we understand, now if we understand this in how ordination often works in our circles, then it's one thing to call a man as a pastor who hasn't been ordained and letting him serve for a few years before seeking or recommending ordination. Why? Because as Paul explains in verse 24, sins find a man out. Some men, some people just live in their sins and their sins are well known and clearly evident. That's the case, likely you're not going to call that man while others do a better job of keeping their sins hidden. In verse 25, Paul says the same is true for people doing good work. Some men, people, do good Christian works, not trying to earn salvation, but living salvation out. Some have these good works seen. These works can, just, can be just as conspicuous as sins in some people while others never seem to be noticed for their good works, either on purpose or not, and don't mind. But like secret sins, these good works can and often will be found out. Even if they're not found out in this life, they will be found out and are known by the Lord. So Timothy was to really, was really to get to know the man before appointing him as an elder pastor overseer. Churches today can and should do their due diligence on prospective pastoral candidates, whether seeking to fill the senior pastor position or adding men to the pastoral staff. Now, this part of chapter 5 in 1 Timothy focused on leadership, focused on the leadership. Paul gives specific principles of how to treat those men in the office of elder pastor. If the church is able to support him full-time, all the better. If not, it would be in their interest to find ways to get their pastor to full-time. No matter what, Paul demonstrates that the man in the office should receive a double honor. The respect due to the office, and as he proves his leadership, and especially as he labors in preaching and teaching, he should be cared for with proper, adequate, and appropriate salary. Paul also showed that the principles of dealing with sin issues with elders. More than one accusation is best, and every accusation should be treated fairly without prejudice against the pastor or partiality for the pastor. If need be, the, dis 
if need be, the disciplining of a member, deacon, or pastor should be done publicly so that the rest of the membership sees how seriously sin and holiness is taken by the church because it is taken seriously by the Lord. Paul reminds Timothy not to be hasty in appointing men as elders without carefully evaluating their character and spiritual life. By failing to do this due diligence, if the man is seen as blatantly unqualified or begins teaching heresy, Timothy or those who appointed the man share some of the blame for his sins. The office of pastor elder is one of great responsibility. The church has a responsibility to care for the man in the office, to hold him accountable for his actions, and to evaluate him before setting him before an ordination council or even calling him to the church. All of this requires adherence to proper biblical doctrine and much prayer for the Lord's leading in all of these situations. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminder of these truths in your word, the importance that we see here concerning personal holiness, one's spiritual life and character. Father, we pray that we will be able to keep these truths in our minds and in our hearts. And help us to remember that these are things that help make a good church function in a proper and orderly way. Lord, we pray that we be able to keep these truths in our minds. We thank you for the reminder of these truths that you have given to us through Paul. <clears throat> and we pray that we, be able to, that we would be, that we would apply these things properly, even here in Brownsdale. So Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.